How do you answer the question? How good is good enough? About three or four months ago, I was asked by one of the elders at the Broadmoor congregation, Mitch, we'd like for men from the Nashville area to come and preach at Broadmoor each Wednesday night. And we're looking for lessons that if you had one opportunity to teach brethren, what would that, that message be? And I responded to him and I said, well, I do believe there is one that over the course of 20 plus years in the Lord that I have seen among my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is this, something to this effect. I don't know if I want to die today. And it's because I don't know if I would be with the Lord in heaven. And I'm not sure about that. And, and so, you know, I don't feel like I'm ready to die. And I would press and I would ask, why? And this is the response. I don't know if I've done enough. I don't know if I've been good enough. I don't know if I've really been giving my life over to the Lord as much as I know I can. And it's along those lines that this question arises. Well, then how good is good enough? And I do believe I remember telling you about a family. And I don't know if it was in Bible class or in a sermon. But we have a brother in Christ in Georgia where I used to preach. And, and when he was growing up, he worshipped in Texas. And he was with a congregation that had this on the forefront of their minds because of what was said. See, here's a brother in Christ who was elderly. And he was giving the prayer. And no sooner than he was done saying amen, he dropped dead. At the funeral, some of the brethren were getting together and talking and said, you know, at least we know for sure that this is a brother who is in heaven because he did not have time to sin and lose his soul. So we know that he is saved. The rest of us don't have that luxury. And I, I found that to be the saddest commentary that we could have about the promises of God as explicitly stated in Scripture and many of the passages. But here's the thing. I believe that we have many brothers and sisters in Christ who really think this way and struggle with this. You see, I, about a month ago, I remember giving a sermon, Blessed Assurance. And I remember after the sermon... Statements along this line of, you know, I, I see the scriptures, but I still struggle with this. And I said, you're not the only one. There are many brethren that struggle with this very mindset. And so these are the things that I'm hoping that when we get through a lesson like this, we get to see it. But I, I do want you to ask this question, you know, how good is good enough? And when we look at the difficulty of this question, biblically, we know we're not. I mean, if we're to, to have a Bible class and we've got the, the question and then we fill in the answer, I bet we would have just about every one of us say, well, I know we're not good enough. Biblically, we know the answer to the question. But that's not the question I'm asking. I'm asking practically speaking. How do you answer that? And that's where we have the difficulty. Many still wonder, even with the biblical knowledge that we're not good enough to be with God in heaven, 
How do I get there then? Even when we know the answer biblically, we ask that question practically. And so that's what we're seeking. So to get a clear picture of our salvation, what I think needs to take place is that we need to have a good, healthy balance between the understanding of God's grace and man's faith while looking at the promise of God. Standing on the promise of God. We sing these songs. Standing on the promise of God. Do we not believe what we're singing? That we stand on the promises of God? See, I think it's one of those things that when we sing these songs, we sing it and it makes us feel great. And then when it comes to real life questions and answers, then we're like, uh, I don't, uh, I'm shaky now. And we don't stand on the very promise that God has given to us. And there are many men, I think, that preach the gospel that make it hard for us to stand firm on the promise. Because we've got this impression of having to be good enough. I need to try harder. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever struggled with something in your life, personally, that you are told by someone else, or you are telling yourself, I've just got to try harder? Let me ask you. 100% of the time, have you been successful at trying harder? Not 50%, not 25%, or not even 99%. 100% of the time, have you tried harder and been successful? I'm going to be honest. I've tried harder and I've never been able to be 100% successful. And I've tried harder. And then I've tried harder after that. And I've tried even harder after that. And I still go back to the fact of why is it that I keep trying harder and I still fail? Brethren, am I the only one that thinks this way? I guess so. I don't know about you, but there comes a point when you realize no matter how hard you try, your good enough is not good enough. And so we're looking at this. And when we go back to Mark chapter 10 and read verse 17 following, I want you to ask this question in light of what this rich young man, this, as he says, a prince or a ruler, how he answered the question. In fact, We'll even go back to start off the whole conversation between him and Jesus. Look at what it says again in verse 17. Now, as he, that is Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running. Knelt before him and asked, good teacher. What shall I do that I that I may inherit eternal life? I mean, imagine this. If you have great wealth, do you seem like, from a material standpoint, you need much? No. I don't think so. And when someone else is walking on the road, there's not much reason to be running up after someone. You kind of look desperate. You know, if you're wealthy, you got it all together. So I don't want to look so desperate. But here's this picture. This guy, this young man is running up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? I mean, it seems to me, and, and everyone's got their own opinions, I think that this young man was really asking a sincere question. 
And I believe part of that sincerity is how Jesus, when he was approached by this young man, running up to him, kneeling down before him, reclaiming him as good teacher. And then Jesus' response with great love for him when he says, I've done this all for my youth. And with love, here's what he told him. I honestly believe this was a sincere young man. Jesus makes the obvious answer. But sometimes we fail to see what is obvious. You see, the world tells us, you're special. That's what our society teaches us. And in a, if I can be worldly and fleshly, in a sense, we are each individually very special. I mean, I'm unique. None of you are like me, and some of you are thankful, I bet. <laughs> We're all unique. We all have our unique, special qualities. But, you know, that's not where Jesus was coming from. And, that's, and when you look at the grand scheme of life, we need to understand, we're not special. That bursts some of our bubbles. It may lower some of our esteem. But Jesus is making it clear, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, he says. Now, would, in our society today, people would say, oh, let me talk to you, Jesus. You got it all wrong. We are special. God made us. Who should know better than the Son of God? When answering the question and making it very, very state or stately, if you will, to this young man. So this young man would think, well, you know what? I know that. Let me just back up. Jews with a cultural mindset that they had understood that no one was good except for God. Jews understood that. It's even in Old Testament scripture. In fact, when we get to Romans chapter three and can read a passage like Romans three, verse nine and ten, it's quoted from the Old Testament. So Jews understood no one is good. And yet, here is this young man going up to Jesus and says, good teacher. He knew the answer to the question. No one is good. Not as you stand before God. And when we look at the, the rest of the scriptures and understand our relationship, we can see that is true. We know that there is none good. It says there is no one who is righteous, not even one. And going back to the 53rd Psalm, no one who seeks him. And someone said, but Mitch, what about Noah? Does not the book of Genesis, when you read in Genesis chapter 6, it says that Noah was perfect in his generation? Well, Moses, writing with inspiration, was comparing Noah to the rest of the world. Compared to the rest of the world, he was perfect. This is the same man who gotten drunk two nights in a row from his daughters. We, we are told that all are confined under sin. Romans 3, verse 20. All are guilty of sin. There is not one person in this room, let alone in this world, who is righteous. And you know what I hear? I hear him from, from my own brothers and sisters in Christ. And you may have said it along this line. Well, if there's anyone that was able to go to heaven, it'd be that person. Brother so-and-so, none like him. If anyone would be in heaven, it would be that brother, that sister. She was the sweetest. In my mind, if I could be fleshly again, it'd be Grandma Cloverdale. She's a sister in Christ up in north central Missouri. She's in her late 80s. Used to play Scrabble with her just about two, three, four, five times a week. And I remember her. She'd make, she'd make scratch food from scratch. That's amazing. 
that you could do that. And if you were to visit Grandma Cloverdale at 3 o'clock in the morning to come knocking on the door, at 3 o'clock in the morning, a pie, your favorite pie, was hot, waiting for you to have a slice. That's Grandma Cloverdale. And you never heard an unkind word. Never. Not even once. I played 150 Scrabble games with her. I won 149 of them. And she smiled at every single loss. If there was anyone, fleshly speaking, that would deserve to go to heaven, it's Grandma Cloverdale. Well, you see, that's not true. She does not deserve to go to heaven. She's not good enough to go to heaven. I don't care who is in this world, not a soul has ever been born from the time of Adam in his creation to our time today or who will ever come. None is good. Not even one. Gandhi is out. Mother Teresa, she's out. No disrespect to any person in this world, but no one is good when it comes to the fact that we stand before a just and holy God who is perfect. So with that said, then, how do we understand who can be good enough to go to heaven? Well, this is where the balance of this subject called grace and the subject called faith comes in. And I want to preface this statement. It is my personal contention, brethren, that when we talk about grace, we believe it, we verbalize it, but we don't fully embrace it. We don't because we don't want to go too far to the side that abuses God's grace and allows us to go down that road where grace can cover all my sin because the Bible says grace is greater than sin, so I can just do whatever. So what we have done, again, this is just my personal observation, is we cling to the faith so much so that it seems as if it all hinges upon me. And then I ask the question, am I good enough? Have I been faithful enough? And I believe we lose the balance. And so that's what I want us to search for the next few seconds or less few minutes is this. So we know biblically Romans chapter 1 verse 16 based upon John 3. John 3 verse 16. God so loved this world. He gave us his only begotten son that all who believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. So here's the good news. Here's the gospel. Jesus is the Christ who came just as we were being led in song as Emmanuel. Here is God, our Creator, coming in the flesh and in the likeness of the flesh, putting sin to death by way of His flesh. And the message is that Jesus arose from the dead and all who believe on His name will be saved. And that is why Jesus declared to His disciples, you go into all the world, you make disciples. What are disciples? But those who are followers that believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he says, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or as Luke says in Luke 24, verse 46 and 47, that this is a message of what? Repentance? And the remission of sins? Or as Mark says, that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's the gospel message. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he will wash away your sins. So those who are baptized in the Christ will have those sins put away. That's what we're told in Acts 2.38. That's what we see in in Acts chapter 8, verse 36 through 39 with um, the Ethiopian eunuch and many other passages that we can see exampled in Scripture. And so we know that we are saved by grace. 
when it comes to this passage, what is, what is the passage that we like to quote when we hear this, we are saved by grace? Ephesians 2, verse 8. We are saved by grace through faith. And this is the one we want to hang on. And there's nothing wrong with hanging on it so long as we hang in a balanced manner. Otherwise, we'll fall off to the side. You see, when we look at the Scriptures, we hear the message of salvation, and we believe in the promise that, that God says that those, Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 following, those who believe would in fact repent. I mean, this is the Israelites. They had put to death and crucified the one who had no sin in him, but who died for their sins. And they needed to turn away from their unbelief that Jesus was the Christ. They rejected him as such. And now repent. Believe that he is the Christ. And that's why the message in Acts 2.38 was specific to these Jews. Repent. Believe that he's the Christ. And be baptized for the remission of your sins. And what shall you receive if you do so? The gift of the Holy Spirit. There's that seal Ephesians 1 verse 13 tells us the Holy Spirit is a seal in which we have this promise from God ensuring us salvation. And here's your guarantor. The Holy Spirit. So we are told then that we're saved by grace through faith. So we, we see this balance. We can read in Ephesians 2. We know it's a gift from God. Verse 9 of Ephesians 2. And we look from a mental, from a Bible study standpoint and go, I understand this. What happens is we, we side by faith because we don't want grace to be abused. So when Paul was writing the letter to the church at Rome, he understood this as well. In Romans chapter 6, when you read verse 1, he says, Shall we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? He understood that there would be those that when they hear the grace card, if you will, that they're going to use that to justify whenever they, whenever they get the flesh and go, no big deal. God's grace will cover it. Jesus' blood will cover it. That's not what he's saying. He said, those of you who have died to sin, you have now become a slave to righteousness. You are now belong to Jesus Christ. You are to love Him and keep His commandments. And so that's exactly what we see in Scripture. We know that grace is not to, to abound in our lives. We know that we put that, that man of sin to death. That when we rose up out of that watery grave, it is a clear conscience that says, Lord, I belong to you. I'm going to follow after your ways. How did the Lord live? What do we see in His life? We see one who is completely devoted to and dedicated to doing His Father's good pleasure. That's what. That's what we see. And if we're going to follow in His footsteps, that's what we'll do. We're not going to use our flesh to justify activity and then be okay with that. Because we hate sin. In fact, when you go on from Romans chapter 6 and Romans 7, that's exactly what Paul deals with. I love the law. The law is good. And I know that through the law, I'm guilty of sin. But I love it, and I want to do it. Well, what does verse 24 in Romans 7 tell us? What does it say there? Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin? 
Why? Because I know that with my mind, I want to serve God, but with the flesh, I end up being guilty of sin. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is found in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. And the thanksgiving is found in Romans chapter 7, verse 25, that with the mind, I serve the law of God, and with the flesh, the law of sin. And so what he's saying is, we know that because we live in sin, we're under this bondage called flesh, that we need a Savior. And Jesus is the Savior. He's the answer to the fact that we're not good enough. And look at what he says. Look at verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. How many of you sincerely believe that passage? Not mentally, not academically, but genuinely believe that there is zero condemnation to those who are in Christ. Yeah. You should all have your hands up. You should all shout out within your hearts, if not out loud, that I believe that. That is, a, that is one of the most wonderful passages in the Bible that is the promise of God, brethren. You should not ever question. You know what it should be? It should be so black and white that you know it's this. That when you're walking with the Lord, you have no condemnation. When you don't care about the Lord and you just do what you want to do, you, you have no hope. Let me put it that way. There's no hope for someone who walks contrary to the Lord, who rejects the Lord. See, remember a month ago when we were looking at that lesson? I was mentioning to you there are ways that you are going to be rejected. And that is if you don't believe that Jesus came into this world and died for our sins. If you don't believe that He is the Christ. We're told that in 2 John, when you read verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15. Not to have company with those who would try to tell you that there is no such thing as the resurrection. By the way, teenagers, it's not about just being around kids that have bad habits, you know, because bad habits corrupt what good morals were told in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. It's talking about those who would reject Jesus as the Christ, those who rejected his resurrection. That's who you shouldn't be hanging around with because that denial will cause you to lose your soul. And so here we are. We come back to this question. How good is good enough? Well, I can tell you how good it is that if I am found in Jesus Christ, and brethren, I'm not going to be arrogant when I say this. I'm confident not in myself, but in the Lord. I'm in Jesus Christ. Guess what? There is no condemnation in Mitch Davis. That's not arrogance. It's biblically sound interpretation of Scripture. And if you are in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. I don't care if I don't like the fact that you have this or that, that is my opinion that says, I don't think that's wise of you. You're in Jesus Christ. It's when we start questioning each other and start going, okay, well, but you're not doing what I think. You're not dressed the way I dress. You don't speak the way I speak. You don't look the way I look. And whatever the situation is, and as if now you're not qualified to be with God in heaven. Brethren, that's upside down thinking for those who are works oriented. It really is. No condemnation to those in Christ. 
we are told that the one who is in Jesus Christ sets their mind on the Spirit. If you don't set your mind on the Spirit, now you need to check. You see, those who set their mind on the Spirit are not necessarily perfect in their walk, but they love God. They want to do His will. And I would venture to say, if those who were in the first and second Samuel class that we're in, I believe it was in second Samuel chapter 23. When you look at David's last words, it's written in poetic form. When you look at it, look at what David said. He said, there is no sin in me, he says of himself. Wait a second. Here's the works-based mindset of today's Christian. David, you lied. You're under inspiration. Understand. God, you're, God breathed. We see it in Scripture. But you lied. Because I know you sinned when you committed adultery. And I know you sinned when you committed murder. And I know you sinned when you took that census without God's authority. There are three very explicit sins recorded in Scripture. And there's a host of others that we can even talk about. But those would be more like inferences on our part. The fact is, from a perfection standpoint, how could David ever declare there was no sin in him? Because he's put his trust in the salvation of God and not in himself being good enough. That's how. That's how. That's why you can read a passage like Romans chapter 8 and not be confused about it. That's how you can read a passage like 1 John and read the entire third chapter and read how the passage says, to those who are in the Lord and those who keep His commandments, there is no sin in Him. That's how you can understand a passage like that. It's because it's not about... Have I done enough? Have I, am I good enough? It's about the fact that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. When we're in Christ Jesus, we're freed from the law, the law of sin, the law that brings forth death. That's what happened. That's why you can read a passage like Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, that those who, who live by way of the fruit of the Spirit, what does it say? And against such there is what? There's no law. Nothing can condemn you if you're in Christ Jesus and you are found to walk in the Spirit, put your mind set on the Spirit. There's no law against you. There's no condemnation against you. And that's what we can read of further on in Scripture. That is why, again, as we mentioned about a month ago, how you could even declare, Abba, Father. You know that God has no fellowship with sin, right? You know that. Brethren, God cannot have fellowship with any one of us in this room unless we're found blameless. And if we're in Christ, we're found blameless. And because we're in Christ, we can look at Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, and we can say, God, you're my Father. I have fellowship with you because of your Son and what He's done. It's not because I was good enough that somehow I made it. I did more than others. I did better than others. It's because of the blood that was shed on my behalf that allows me to even approach your throne of grace and mercy. And that is the faith that Jesus is talking about. And that is the faith that the Apostle Paul is talking about. When you read Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2, you know, that's the only way we can even come to the throne of God's grace is by virtue of faith that Jesus is the Christ who died for my sins. And when you read verses 31 following, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Notice, or the love of Christ. Notice this passage. We've read it many, many times. But 
read it to understand it from the standpoint that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's read that together. Verse 31 of Romans 8 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things. We are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brethren, that is wonderful. That is amazing. And that's the reason why Every one of us in this room can have 100.0% confidence that we're not good enough, but God is, and I'm in Christ. Therefore, I'm perfected. I am blameless. I am without sin because I'm in Him. Please never mistake. Being found in Christ doesn't mean you cannot be guilty of committing a sin. It simply means that by virtue of being in Christ, those who are Christians, whenever guilty of sin, they'll always ask forgiveness when they're confronted with it, when they, when they come to realization. Because why? We humble ourselves before our great and awesome God. We fear Him. We love Him. We strive to glorify Him. And thus we have an intercessor in Jesus Christ. And that is why we can continue to be blameless because we're in Him. That is how we can read these passages that have been discussed this morning. So we know then, I'm not good enough. But, as Psalm 28 says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him. Not because of how good I am. It trusts in Him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts and with my song I shall thank Him. Brethren, stop and think about this. And we're going to, next Sunday, we're going to have Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at that from the word transformation. We're going to look at it from a standpoint that if you genuinely believe what God has done for you, and that you are found blameless in Him, how would you respond? In my personal opinion, you respond by being transformed. From the inside out. And you will see the fruits. You will see all the good fruit. That the Lord has shown to us. And you will walk in them with thanksgiving. Your life is so changed dramatically. That people in the world see you. And even for some who are Christians. Maybe many. People will see such a drastic change in you. They cannot help but see God. They cannot help but see Jesus Christ. Shining through your life. 
That's exactly why Jesus said, you are a light on a hilltop. You will show by your, quote unquote, your good works, who God is, how glorious he is. You will by your life share what you are compelled to share, that Jesus is good and we're not. And that's why he's our savior and we're not. So I want to ask you, what's your, what's your answer to the question? How good is good enough? You know how good good enough is? Believe that Jesus is the Christ. That he died for you. And that you will love him and keep his commandments. And that his commandments are not burdensome to you. You will believe that He is the risen Savior of this world and you will conform your life to His image because you give thanks to Him and you exult in Him and you want to be just like Him who is with our Father in Heaven. That's how good enough you need to be. And when you sin, you have an advocate. Every single time you sin and feel sorry for your sin, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus confronted this lady with sin... He simply said to her, go sin no more. He didn't browbeat her. He said, go sin no more. And to those who had faith in Him, He says, your faith has made you well. Believe that He is the one that makes you well. And you have everlasting life.